You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Episode two. They said it wouldn't last. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming back to episode two, guys. We're excited to dive into some more uh, some more stories from Hollywood. I have been thinking this week about the first time that I came to Hollywood. I was in college. I I hadn't moved here yet, but it was my first time walking down Hollywood Boulevard. I was in a daze. I was shocked <laughs> by what I was seeing. Yes, <laughs> and I eventually got hungry and I thought where's a safe place to go eat and so I wandered into this restaurant that unbeknownst to me at the time was Musso and Frank oh so one of the most iconic restaurants in Hollywood probably the most um Again, popularized by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino. Thank you so much. Now you can't get a reservation. Yes. <laughs> um, but I was wondering about your first moments in Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. I, I moved to Los Angeles in the late 80s, and Hollywood was very different back then, as you probably know. It was this just land of decayed decadence. Right, on one block, you have the El Capitan Theater, and then you have the most horrible t-shirt shops and souvenir shops and homeless people and drug addicts and prostitutes. It was this weird dichotomy of just once was once beautiful, you know, architecture and now what had it come. So it was it was a weird uh, first introduction to Hollywood. Yeah. And I think the skyline too, certainly the Hollywood sign is still there and, and has gone through some iterations. But the skyline itself, there is one prominent building that's still there. Well, two, Capitol Records is still there. Absolutely, which is an iconic. But I, I think the other one, and it's what we'll talk about today, because it has a very sordid history, is the Knickerbocker Hotel, which I don't know if many people are familiar with it. But if you're driving around Hollywood, even today, you turn up Ivar, and there's this huge 11-story, boxy, blah, sort of nothing building that has these beautiful, illuminated 
letters on top that say Knickerbocker Hotel. And I'm sure people are wondering, what is that place? Right. We're going to tell you. We're going to tell you. When was it built? Well, it was originally constructed in 1923. Uh, It was designed by an architect named E.M. Frazier. Um, But it took them years to complete. It had all kinds of fits and starts. And, you know, they ran out of money. They started again. New ownership. It it finally opened in, uh, I believe it was July of 1929. Just in time for the stock market crash in oh, September. <laughs> of course. Great. But in spite of that, almost immediately, it became a hub. It became a hot spot for Hollywood. There was a jazz club there called the Lido Room. Everybody went there. It was the place to, to go, to be seen, to network. Who would we see in 19... 19- <laughs> 39 on any given night. Well, with uh, a martini in their hand, no doubt. Of course. Well, any given night, you would see anybody there. But there were some famous um, actors who actually lived there. They they took residency up there. Um, you know, for a while, Betty Davis lived there. Uh, Dick Powell lived there. Maureen O'Sullivan lived there for a long time. Wow. And also Mae West. Before she moved to the Ravenwood, which is her famous apartment where she died, she lived briefly in the Knickerbocker. So it has, you know, a very celebrity-laden uh past of of occupants. There were also some very celebratory events that happened there that involved a lot of famous people as well, correct? Yes. It was sort of a go-to place for for banquets and dinners and parties. You know, they had these beautiful banquet rooms that were just gorgeous, that really highlighted uh, the Spanish colonial revival architecture, um, which was prevalent then. But, you know, um, Howard Hughes would have business dinners there. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille would have parties there. But one famous one happened in 1935 when uh, America's favorite pinup girl with the million-dollar legs, Betty Grable, she hosted this very elaborate birthday party. Her Actually, it was the 21st birthday party for her boyfriend and future husband, Jackie Coogan. Wow. Um, and for people who may not remember Jackie Coogan, he was a child actor, and he is the reason that all child actors today are protected, at least their money's protected from the greedy parents because because his parents weren't so uh, kind with his money. We now have Coogan laws, which protects kids and they have to set up a trust fund and their money's protected and things like that. Thank you, Jackie Coogan. Thank you, Jackie Coogan. And also for people of a certain generation, you might remember Jackie Coogan as Uncle Fester on the TV show, The Addams Family. So that was Betty Grable's husband. Tell me who Speck was. Uh, Speck was fantastic. I, I wish I could have seen Speck. As sort of a gimmick, the hotel manager, Jack Matthews, he had this English setter dog, and the name was Speck. Well, to kind of entertain the guests, he taught Speck how to operate the elevator. <laughs> Speck would we need go to in. teach Sally that, and you need to teach Myrna <laughs> our two doggies. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Only Myrna can do something so useful. <laughs> so he taught Speck to um, stand on his hind legs, and with his paw, he would hit the floor button. Um, so, you know, he could basically operate the elevator. Uh, and he was very polite. He always let the guests enter and exit first, and then he would go. <laughs> <laughs> But the funny thing is, he also, he would never bark. He was, he'd was he done elevator duty. It was time to go back to his um, master's uh, apartment, which was on the third floor, I believe. He never scratched the door. He never barked. He rang the doorbell <laughs> because that's what he was taught. that's what he was taught. Wow. So Speck was quite the, the scene around the Knickerbocker for a while. Wow. You know, last week we were talking about our memories of watching old movies as a kid. And one of the ones that popped into my head this week is the movie Houdini with Tony Curtis, Janet Leigh playing his wife, 
What a such a fabulous great film. Great movie. What a performance. Yeah. Yeah. And so well. tell us. Tell us about <laughs> Funny Houdini. you should mention Houdini. <laughs> because of course, um Houdini um has sort of something to do with the Knickerbocker Hotel. And it's funny because this is when the Knickerbocker Hotel started to get sort of a, a sordid history of, of sort of the dark and the interesting. What happened was um, before Houdini died, I think he died at 52 on Halloween night of 1926, mm-hmm. um, he promised his wife, Bess, that after he died, if there really was an afterlife, he would come back and visit her. So for 10 years, Bess would hold an annual seance to bring back Harry. No luck, no luck, no luck. And so finally, on the 10th year anniversary, she decided to hold the annual seance on the rooftop of the Knickerbocker Hotel. And it became like a, a spectacular, this is press spectacular. Everybody was there, cameras, wow, uh, everything. She had, you know, trumpets and velvet pillows and all these things that were supposedly to help with the seance. Of course, Harry was a no-show. Oh, darn it. <laughs> for the 10th year in a row. And did she continue to have them after that, or she, was that the last she one? She did not. That was it. I think she figured after 10 years, maybe there was no after. Right. I don't know. And I would imagine <laughs> that a lot of people took advantage of her belief that he would show up and were probably yes. bilking her for, for I, some money. I, I, I think so. Yeah. I, I think definitely so. Well, this sordid past continues on with uh, what you call the Unlucky Seven. Can you talk about that? Oh, the Unlucky Seven, which actually will bring in someone that we spoke about in our first episode. But in 1935, Paramount Pictures, um, sort of as a publicity stunt, they selected seven starlets, actresses from their roster, contract players, you know, not, not anybody who'd done much yet. And they picked them to be the lucky seven. They were the seven actresses that they thought had potential, were going to go on and be great big stars. And unfortunately, the moniker, the lucky seven, ended up being probably more ironic because of the seven, five of them had zero careers. I mean, they... they Didn't even appear really they, in anything? They did appear, but okay. they had they had careers that just really weren't spectacular at all. And, and those five, they were... It was Eleanor Whitney, Rosalind Keith, Jane Rhodes... Olympi Branda, who was a French dancer. Okay. Uh, Betty Burgess. Any of those names ring a bell? No. Any films that they were in that even if they had a small part, we would go, oh, I know that film title. Or were they really just in small pictures You know what? Small pictures Mostly well. small pictures. I mean, Eleanor Whitney made a few films that you might recall her. Rosalind Keith also. The others... Nothing. Okay. You, you would never, I could never point to a movie. Oh, that scene with the car hop girl that's so funny. That's Betty Burgess. Yeah. Can't think of it. Okay. <laughs> well, what about the other two of the seven? Well, the other two actually did achieve fame. They both did in their own rights. Um, the first one, who was the sixth member of that sorority, was Marsha Hunt. And a little personal note about Marsha Hunt. Um, when I first moved to California, um, for a brief time, I lived in Sherman Oaks, California. And my neighbor a block away was Marsha Hunt. Wow. And my great friend, Ann Rutherford, who's the actress from Gone with the Wind, who I call my fairy godmother because she's partially responsible for me coming to California, which is a whole other story for another episode. <laughs> but Ann knew that Marsha and I were neighbors, so she played little neighbor matchmaker. So she connected Marsha and I, and we became lifelong friends. She became one of my my dearest friends, my my 
most cherished confidants. We, we just, we did Hollywood together. And, and you knew who she was in Hollywood history. I did. Yeah. I, I knew Marsha because, I, well, I, and people would know Marsha from, she was the hilarious Mary in Pride and Prejudice, the 1940 version with Greer Garson and Lawrence Olivier and Marina Sullivan. She was in Blossoms in the Dust with Greer Garson. She did a lot of Greer Garson movies and she actually didn't like Greer that much, but oops, I'm speaking out of school. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's, so, she's okay. <laughs> and she, she made the great, you know, film noir raw deal with Claire Trevor, but you know, she became a star. Um, but unfortunately she was one of the victims of the blacklist in the early fifties. And it, it, she wasn't a communist. She had no interest in communism. She was just a very liberal politically woman. And, and she was very vocal in, you know, in, her, in beliefs. her beliefs. You know, she really thought that we should take care of the homeless and we should take care of the poor and we should, you know, all these things that were considered very liberal beliefs back then. So, so she was blacklisted. She was blacklisted. She and her husband both were blacklisted. And it's funny, she was in Europe when it happened. And um, before she had gone to Europe, I think a couple of networks, CBS and NBC, were interested in her doing a show, like the Marsha Hunt show. By the time she got back from Europe, you know, the, that was the ball dumb. had dropped and it was over. She did not work for many, many years. She did work, you know, eventually again. But, I mean, her career was so on the move and it was stopped on a dime. Right. And was she um, open in talking with you about that period of her life? Absolutely. You know, she went on to be a real historian about the blacklist, and she would she would lecture about it. She would oh. speak at the academy. She was very open and honest about it and had no issue talking about it at all. But the beauty is, you know, Marsha ended up um, taking the lemons, and she totally made lemonade out of her life. Yes. Um, she ended up going on being an advocate for homeless, and she helped set up homeless shelters in um the Valley, and she was the honorary mayor of Sherman Oaks, and she worked with the United Nations. And I mean, she, her philanthropy work, Google it, is unbelievable. And if you haven't seen it, my friend Roger Mimos has an incredible documentary that came out in 2014 called Marsha Hunt Sweet Adversity. Uh, and it's really worth checking out because you really see the, the, the scope of this beautiful, beautiful woman and, and what she did with her life after yeah. the blacklist. Yeah. So we have the final number seven in our unlucky seven. Well, the number seven brings us back to our first episode. And the seventh member of the unlucky seven was Francis Farmer. Ah, uh, Francis Farmer. I know, which I know has a special place we, in your yes, heart. Yes, we man. talked last week. If you missed last week's episode, our first episode, we talked about Jessica Lange in the 1982 film Francis, and the photo of Francis Farmer that's actually on the website is very reminiscent of Jessica Lange's performance and the raw. Yes. of it and and what Francis Farmer yeah, went through. Absolutely. And you know and it, when I think about Francis Farmer, I think it's sad that she's now better known for her personal problems True. than she is for her work because she was an incredible actress. Yes. Um, you know, she was in, you know, Rhythm and the Range with opposite Bing Crosby, which really put her on the map and then she went back to New York and got involved with a group theater with Lee Strasberg. I don't know if many people know this, but she originated the role in Golden Boy that Barbara Stanwyck made famous on film in 1939. Wow. She was the original person. And also, this will tie us to episode one, too. <laughs> so back in New York, when Frances was appearing in Golden Boy, she had an affair with Clifford Odette, the playwright, who at the time was married to Louise Reiner. Wow. Louise <laughs> is back again. You can't shake Louise, no, right? No, no. Um, we have many more stories to talk about 
with the Knickerbocker Hotel. But right now, it's time for this week's Hollywood Pop Quiz. Steve, take it away. We all know about the, the great Tony Curtis, Janet Lee movie, Houdini. But there was also a 1976 TV movie made about Houdini. Who starred as Harry Houdini? And you'll get bonus points if you can tell me who starred as Bess, his wife. Oh, this is a good one. Again, no fair Googling. We'll be right back and we'll have the answer to our pop quiz and more stories from the Knickerbocker Hotel. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Steve and Nan will be right back. But first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. The very first movie studio built in Hollywood was the Nestor Film Company, which was the West Coast branch of the Centaur Film Company out of Bayonne, New Jersey. It opened its doors on October 27, 1911, and was located in the Blondo Tavern Building on the northwest corner of Sunset and Gower. In May of 1912, it merged with the Universal Film Manufacturing Company, headed by Carl Lemley. Now back to Steve and Ann. To finish up the connection to Francis Farmer and the Knickerbocker, tell us what happened. Well, Francis actually lived at the Knickerbocker Hotel in the early 40s, and on uh, January the 13th, 1943, the police showed up at her apartment because there was a warrant for her arrest on a drunk driving charge. Because, of course, Francis had many incidences with the police and run-ins with the police, and we all know about her tragedy. She wouldn't answer the door, even though they clearly knew she was there. They ended up using a pass key to get in, and they found her buck naked, screaming, you know, in a manic state. They forcibly had to dress her, drag her out of the apartment, and they drug her through the lobby of the Knickerbocker Hotel. The whole time she's screaming and yelling and cursing while all the guests watch in horror. And they took her out to the squad car. And, you know, and we all know what happened to her after that. She was institutionalized and eventually given an involuntary lobotomy, which is so tragic. It's such a tragic story, what happened to her. It really is. And it's funny, and I'll, I'll tie Marsha Hunt back in here again. Uh, Marsha loved Francis. They were very close back in the day at Paramount, and she thought she was one of the brightest, most intelligent, liveliest women she knew. She you know, didn't keep in touch with Francis during all the, the dark years, but um, in the early 60s, Marsha did a play in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, wow. And that's where Francis had settled. After the lobotomy, after the, the all the, the tragedy, she had settled into a very quiet life in Indianapolis. I, I, I don't know why. But after the play, Francis had a talk show on the local cable station in Indianapolis sure. called Francis Farmer Presents, I believe was the name of it. And she invited Marsha on as a guest. And so they got to have a reunion on Francis's show. And afterwards, Francis invited Marsha over to her house. And Marsha said it was this beautiful cottage with a white picket fence. It was so idyllic. It's probably the life Francis always wanted but never could have because of the tragedies. But she said that the Francis she knew was gone. Wow. She said that she was just vacant. Vacant. She said that all the spark and the lively energy and all that, you know, love of life that Francis had had just been drained out of her, which I think is the most tragic part of the story of all. It truly is. Yeah. It truly is. I had a wonderful teacher 
in college who I ended up being a teaching assistant for. And he taught a general education course on the history of film. And his name is Ron Perrier. And um, shout out to Ron. Shout out to Ron. He's a wonderful guy. And he's how I first learned about the next person we're going to talk about, who is D.W. Griffith. Yes. And his connection to the Knickerbocker. Oh, absolutely. He And he definitely had a connection there. <laughs> well, yeah, as, as most people know, you know, D.W. Griffith was probably one of the most influential directors in Hollywood who started off pioneering director of Hollywood. Um, he's probably most known for a couple of very controversial movies, um, Birth of a Nation in 1915 right. and Intolerance in 1916, which I'm just curious, what did Ron say about those movies? <laughs> well, he really, you know, remember, this was a while ago. And so they weren't so much um, considered controversial in the way that we let we view them now through our lens of, yes. you know, 2023. He really focused more on the fact that D.W. Griffith is really responsible for how we think of a, a narrative film right now and how we yeah, um, come to editing film now. And unfortunately, because Birth of a Nation has such controversial pieces to it, I think he's forgotten in, in some respects. He's not known for perhaps what he would hope to be known for. Absolutely. I, I think he's forgotten too, which is really a shame. I know he had some controversial views on life, but that's, you know, doesn't take away his artistry and what he contributed to Hollywood, I don't think. But anyway, um, he lived there in his later years uh, because after he was forgotten, he just became this quiet, dotty old man who lived at the Knickerbocker Hotel. <laughs> and nobody knew who he was. And nobody knew who he was. And interestingly enough, besides his great work as a director... Griffith founded United Artist Studios, along with Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So, you know, he was a real pioneer in Hollywood. That alone he should be remembered for. But, you know, his later years, they were quiet years, and um, he lived there. He would always go in the lobby. He was always dressed to the nines with a suit and a hat, and he always had his cane. And just, you know, sometimes maybe seemed a little confused. <laughs> But he lived there until um, July the 23rd of 1948 when he collapsed in the hotel lobby beneath that grand chandelier, which is still there, by the way. Oh, wow. And that's where D.W. Griffith, the great, passed away right there in the Knickerbocker Hotel. Wow. It's interesting. His forming United Artists with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin was really very forward thinking at the time, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yes. And created independence for artists that they wouldn't necessarily have. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, sadly, it, it's funny when they when D.W. Griffith had his funeral, nobody showed up. All the big stars that he'd helped, you know, foster their careers, not many of them showed up, which was sad. He was just a long forgotten figure in wow. Hollywood. Wow. Well, here's someone from Hollywood that is not forgotten and is still can be found in the little stores and the little tchotchke stores on Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> And that is Marilyn Monroe. What is what is her connection? <laughs> well, it's, to the it's funny because in the 1950s, you know, times had changed. Nobody was going to Hollywood. Everybody right. was moving to Beverly Hills and, and the West Side. So Hollywood became, you know, not as glamorous, and it wasn't the go-to place anymore. And so the Knickerbocker. It wasn't the place you went to be seen anymore. It was a place you went to not be seen. <laughs> and so, you know, on those same lines, um, you know, in 1954, Marilyn Monroe used to sneak through the kitchen of the Knickerbocker and she would meet up with her lover, Joe DiMaggio, the great, uh, who would obviously later become her husband. And that was sort of their secret rendezvous place. Wow. 
Uh, and it was also a hiding out place uh, a few years later in 1955 when Elvis Presley came to town to record his first album, the self-titled Elvis album, and shoot his first movie, Love Me Tender. Uh, he ch- Again, he chose the Knickerbocker because all the screaming girls couldn't find him. Right, right. The Very place to smart. hide. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the place to hide. I don't know if people remember that TV show, This Is Your Life, where they would surprise you. You know, the cameras would rush in and they'd bring up your third grade teacher. And right, <laughs> sort of like the worst surprise party ever it, because it's broadcast in front of everyone. Exactly, <laughs> and it was live. Well, on December the 1st, 1954, a camera crew from This Is Your Life showed up at the Knickerbocker Hotel oh my. in room 205, and inside were the iconic comedy duo Laurel and Hardy. They had no idea what was happening. They had just been lured there by some friends just to come and hang out and have a drink. And, oh, and, wow. And so the cameras rushed in. They both were livid. Both were very private people and did not like it one bit. I think it's on YouTube. If you ever go back and look at that episode, you can see the discomfort, especially on Stan Laurel. Just watch that and remember, they had no idea. Oh my gosh. All at the Knickerbocker. All at the Knickerbocker, which just reminds me, I used to live, one of my very first apartments was right by the staircase where the piano episode. Oh, in in, in, um, uh, Silver Lake? Oh my gosh. I've been there. Tell me who Irene Lentz was. Oh, Irene Lentz. Most people know her just by the singular name, Irene. Yes. I, at vintage stores. I think you can even still find clothing yes, with just you, Irene You on can it. find Irene's clothes. Um, Irene was, um, she started out as an actress. Uh, she was in a lot of Max Sennett comedies. But she was a really good seamstress, and she really had an eye for design. So she started um, designing her own clothes. Uh, she opened a little shop. Um, That led to her getting hired on at the Wilshire Bullock's department store, and that led to the studios calling, and they were looking for people who could design costumes for the movies, and she got pulled into basically designing those beautiful gowns and tuxedos for all of our favorite movie stars. But along the way, she she married a a screenwriter named Elliot Gibbons, who was the brother of um, the great production designer Cedric Gibbons, who was married to Dolores Del Rio, the movie star, so it's, it's all incestuous. Yeah, everybody knows everybody, right? Right. So, you know, so soon Irene is just one of the hottest costume designers in movies. She's designing costumes for Constance Bennett and Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, Paulette Goddard, Rosalind Russell, Joan Bennett, Hedy Lamarr, Carol Lombard. Ingrid Bergman. I mean, the list goes on and on. She was just like the biggest thing in in costume design. And what is the clothing that she designed that we would really all know? She designed very tailored looks for women, which I think is why really strong actresses like Barbara Stanwyck and Joan Crawford were drawn to her. It was that that great tweed suit that's tailored with sharp shoulders and crisp skirts and things like that. The silhouette just says power suit, Yeah, the power suit. She was was the original creator of the power suit. Right. But she also created those sexy clothes that Lana Turner wore in The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, yes. Um, You know, the bare midriff halter tops with the, you know, the Bermuda shorts and things like that. Which is very popular now, by the way. So Irene was ahead of her time. She very much was. (laughs) And also, um, Midnight Lace, another one of my favorite films with Doris Day. Yeah, which she actually was Oscar nominated for Midnight Lace. She had been previously nominated for BF's Daughter in 1948 with Barbara Stanwyck, but Midnight Lace, yeah, Doris was a great friend of her and sort of lured her out of retirement to come back and do um, Midnight Lace. Midnight Lace. Wow. 
But things don't go so well for Irene, and and it really, it's one of the more tragic stories, I think, that happened at the Knickerbocker. You know, by 1961, her husband had had a stroke. There were terrible medical bills. She was mm. had fallen under depression. They were having financial issues. And so on November the 15th, 1962, Irene checked into room 1129 under an assumed name. She started drinking heavily once she got in there, um, and she wrote a couple of suicide notes. Um, she had decided that she couldn't take it anymore. Uh, one of her notes, which just breaks your heart, um, she wrote, I am sorry to do this in this manner. Please see that Elliot is taken care of. Take care of the business and get someone very good to design. Love, Irene. Oh, So then she proceeded to slit her wrist, but that didn't do, that didn't take. So she crawled out of the bathroom window on the 11th floor of the Knickerbocker Hotel, and she plunged to her death. On the street on Ivar. Well, she actually landed on the awning between the two buildings. So she landed about on the fourth floor, um, and, uh, you know, someone down there heard, and they investigated, and and there she was. And and the saddest part of all is, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but, but Doris Day wrote in her biography that Irene confessed privately to her that part of her sadness and depression was um, due to her the death of her unrequited love the year before which was gary cooper oh wow yeah wow. so interest a lot of interesting things there with Irene. yes yes you know lucille ball has certainly been on our minds and hearts uh, of late with the film being done about her and then that wonderful documentary that was yes. done i was on a trip to new york city and i saw lucy arnaz sitting in the waiting room to get on the flight i love lucy arnaz and i so wanted to say something to her and i thought don't bother her and then i saw her on the flight but we weren't in the same area of the plane if you know what i mean and uh and i <laughs> didn't say anything then. And then I got off the plane at JFK and we got in the same elevator. And it was just, it was me. It was meant to be. Yes. And her (laughs) husband. And Lawrence Luckinbill. Yes. And so I said, Miss Ornez, I just have to tell you, I'm a huge fan of yours and your parents. And she could not have been kinder. And then when Lawrence, I think she, does she call him Lawrence or Larry? I don't know. Anyway, when Lawrence came on, she said, this is Nan. She's a big fan of ours Aww. and my parents. And it, we were like old chums. Don't you love that? Yeah. When you meet somebody who's just genuine and nice. Yes. She was a great, great gal. So that all brings us to Mr. William Frawley, our our last story here with Fred, the Knickerbocker. Fred Mertz himself. Yes. Actually, Fred lived at the Knickerbocker Hotel, <laughs> which wow. seems like a perfect place for Fred Mertz to it live. It kind of does. How many years? <laughs> do you know how many years he lived there? Uh, he lived there about 30 years. Um, so he was a long time tenant there was very well known around the place but how he's tied into the knickerbocker today is uh, on march 3rd of 1966 he had gone to a movie on hollywood boulevard he had since left the knickerbocker and he was living at the i think the el royale apartments but he had gone to the movie he was walking down hollywood boulevard and he suffered a heart attack you know pretty debilitating so his nurse who was with him she actually helped him get to the lobby of the knickerbocker hotel and that's where they called the ambulance so a lot of people say he died at the knickerbocker i don't think he did i think he died either en route to the hospital or at the hospital but he's now forever tied to the knickerbocker because he was such a long-term resident and because he collapsed or was, you know, partially taken to the Knickerbocker Hotel after he collapsed. So um, tied into Fred Mertz, too. And the Knickerbocker now, you have a connection to. I do have a connection to the Knickerbocker Hotel because I've always been fascinated by it. And for a few years, I delivered meals for Meals on Wheels. 
And we had several clients who lived in the Knickerbocker Hotel because in the 70s, it was turned into low-income housing. But I got to go inside to deliver meals, and it was very bittersweet because there's some things there that are just the same. The chandelier, you know, the, the beautiful wood of the elevator, but just the, that decayed element is gone. You know, the, the floors are now linoleum. There's literally a bulletproof booth around the front desk. <laughs> So it's, you know, you got to see what it probably used to be and, and what it is now. And it's it's it was uh, very, very bittersweet. But yeah. it was fun to be inside. You, you could almost feel the ghosts wandering around. I was just going to say, the yeah. spirits of old Hollywood live on. Absolutely. I think it's time to get the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Just as a reminder, the question was, yeah. in 1976, there was a TV movie made about Houdini. Who starred as Houdini in that film? And bonus points if you know who played Bess, his wife. (laughs) And the answer is two very great TV stars at the time. Houdini was played by Paul Michael Glazier from Starsky and Hutch. And Bess was played by Sally Struthers from All in the Family. Wow. How about that for a coupling? That is an interesting couple. <laughs> right? I'm just, I'm just picturing that right now. I know. It's a good movie, though. I'm going to have to check out that movie. Steve, that's a wrap on episode two. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at fronbeneththehollywoodsign.com. We have many more great stories for you coming up. So that's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Ann McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneebly. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit AirwaveMedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneebly and Toth. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. That's a wrap.